Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is a young woman who started as a benchtop researcher working in the area of cancer. Her best friend at that time developed breast cancer and she realized that the impact of the disease on patients mattered as much as the science that she was using to develop new treatments for that condition. From there, she began her work at the interface between scientists and advocates. In this podcast, she explains how that works and where the challenges lie for the future. My guest on the podcast today is Hilary Styers. Hilary Styers, I'm delighted to welcome you to the program. And I want to start with your backstory. I know that you are a researcher. I know that you're interested in policy and in particular breast cancer. Where did that interest come from? Thank you so much for having me today. I wanted to start there, but uh, my background is in breast cancer research, but I really started as a behavioral neuroscientist. So when I was an undergrad, I did my undergrad degree in behavioral neuroscience. And while I was doing that, I was also the president of our Colleges Against Cancer Club. And one of the things that I did there was I worked with our Relay for Life organization and raised money for research. And started to recognize the value of kind of fundraising and stories that influenced how we were kind of moving towards finding treatments and and better ways for taking care of patients living with cancer. And so after I finished my undergrad degree, decided I wanted to switch into cancer research and did that through endocrinology. So as a behavioral neuroscientist, endocrinology is important for how the brain influences the way that you think and and act and behave. And in cancer, the hormones are important for kind of driving growth of of cancer. And so in breast cancer, we have three different subtypes, one of which is estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And estrogen is a hormone. And so I spent my PhD looking at how estrogen and progesterone interacted with one another and drove cancer development. So it really was just an interest in kind of the science at that point. I was blessed up to that point to not really have experience with family members or anyone I knew close to me who had been diagnosed with cancer. But as we all know, that that is a very lucky place to be and not a place that people often stay. And so I started my postdoc at Georgetown University. And six months into it, my best friend was diagnosed with breast cancer. So she was 28 years old. We were both 28 at the time. And she had the BRCA mutation, which is common in people who are diagnosed younger. And her diagnosis really taught me that while I had a PhD in breast cancer, I had no idea what the patient was experiencing, what was happening at the clinic when patients were being treated with the drugs that I was studying in a petri dish in a lab. And so it really opened my eyes to the opportunity of working with patients and understanding the patient perspective and how that can drive and influence research. How did your friend do, incidentally? It's, a, it's very sad to hear that somebody in their 20s had got this illness. Yes, it was, it was a hard time. And, you know, she was very lucky that we were standing on the shoulders of giants who had done really amazing work leading up to when I was doing my cancer research. And she had a, a marker called HER2. And so she has HER2 positive breast cancer. And so she was able to take a drug called Herceptin that targets that protein on the breast cancer. And... At this point, she has no evidence of disease and she's coming up on five years. So, Well, that's fantastic. And we wish her all the very best. 
And I want to now continue with your story. So what happened next? That's what you found yourself in this position with your friend doing this research. What happened next? So I, at the same time, was really focused and interested in ensuring you know, science communication. I was working on Twitter and talking to people. And I had started tweeting with this organization or this group. It's not really, I guess it is an organization, but a group called BCSM or Breast Cancer Social Media. So every Monday night from 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern time, they get on Twitter and use the hashtag and have discussions and conversations about breast cancer. And so I had actually started tweeting with them before Katie was diagnosed as a way to kind of understand the clinical side of things a little bit more. And after Katie's diagnosis, I had the opportunity to lean into them as more of a caregiver or you know, an advocate myself for my friend's disease rather than kind of as a researcher. It changed hats a little bit. And so I switched back and forth between being a researcher and being kind of a caregiver. Through that, I was able to learn more about the patient perspective and, and how that can influence research and how it can influence clinical trial design, those kinds of things. And I also started to learn more about how patients can advocate through policy and working you know, directly with Congress, Georgetown's in Washington, D.C. And so it provided me with an opportunity to go to the Hill and have conversations with Congress people about raising funds for cancer research and ensuring that we're directing those funds in the right directions to ensure that the, the research is driving treatments and it's driving improved life, the improved lives, lives for people living with cancer. I think that a lot of research looks at how to kill a cancer, how to kill tumors, how to kill cells. Extremely important. But if that, if that treatment is also killing the person, that's not an ideal situation. Side effects are a really important thing to consider. And, and I think that that was one of the things that I started to learn by working with patients is we need to be more targeted about our approach for treatments and not just you know, in the lab, focus on making sure that we see our growth curves decrease or, you know, the assays that we're doing showing that that growth declines, but also that we're thinking about the patient and when that's going to impact them in long term. So say a little bit more about that. How do you think it is that we fail patients in that regard? You talk about side effects having these awful impact on their lives. Expand on that a little bit. I always like to start, and when we're talking about cancer treatments in the current state today, to just say we have come so far. There have been wonderful advances and wonderful things that, you know, I think about someone like Katie. I don't like to think about what we would have done if we hadn't had the treatments that we had when she was diagnosed and treated. However, a lot of what we do in the way that our drug development happens is we look at the maximum tolerated dose. We're looking at what is tolerated by the patient and not what is actually taking care of the cancer, killing the tumor cells. And so I think there's a balance there that needs to be hit. It's one of the things that I think as a system and as, a, as scientists and researchers, we need to be focused on is ensuring that we're not just thinking about, like I said earlier, how to kill the cells, but also that there's a patient behind that and how this patient is experiencing the treatments that they're being given. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You hear this all the time that patients say, I didn't need that dose of treatment. I didn't need to go that far. A lot of my doctors said to me later on that they had already defeated the cancer even before we got to that point. But we have to be careful here because we need to be absolutely sure that whatever we're doing maximally impacts on the outcome and the prognosis for that patient. How do you strike that balance? Because I'm still not clear about that. Yeah, I think 
Oh, it's not clear to you. It's not clear to me. I think that's one of the things that we as a research community need to focus on. And that's, it's not been in the limelight as much leading up to this point. I think it's becoming more evident and more of a, of a thing that people are talking about. And so one of the things that also drew me to working with patient advocates is having conversations and talking about things like this drives change. So the advocates, I know there's an organization that's currently working to have these conversations between physicians and patients and not just the policy level or anything like that. But the baseline, the place to start is to have the conversations between the advocate or the the patient and the, the physician. And the patient is the advocate for themselves. They have to know and have that information. And so sharing information, driving that dialogue and having those conversations will really drive the change and make these these big impacts on people's lives overall. What I love about what you do, Hillary, is that you've also been at the bench top so you can see the effect of the treatment on those malignant cells. And you can see in a much more real way that the disease is being treated much earlier in the trajectory from when it ends up in the doctor's hands and they're prescribing doses that really, in your mind, might seem excessive to, to do what they're, what they're doing. Where do you think we fall down when you think that you, the evidence in the lab is not being translated into clinical practice? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily that it's not being translated. I think, again, it's that we're not thinking about the patient. The goal is to find the dose that's killing the cells as much as we possibly can. And so then when you put it into a system, there's less of a thought at the bench about how it's impacting the patient. And that plays into it too. So it's finding that balance earlier on, like you're saying, at the bench to be able to use that information to drive the change when it gets to the clinical trial stage, when it's actually going into a patient or making decisions, rather than completely ablating cells in a dish. Let's think about how can we find a way to slow the growth or decrease the growth or kill these cells so that in the long term, we're able to put it into a patient and have them not have as debilitating side effects that in some cases we see patients will stop taking their treatments because the side effects are so bad. That's not an ideal situation. You want to take care of the cancer. And so finding, using the research from the the bench to the bedside and then back again, as you learn more from the bedside, can we go back to the bench and say, okay, this dose seems to be a little bit too high. What kind of tweaks can we make in a a Petri dish that can impact how that patient is going to experience the treatment once it's actually in the clinic? That sounds like thoughtful science and we don't often hear this being (laughs) done in practice. Are we beginning to see evidence of that? And is that being driven by the patient advocates or is it being driven by the scientists? I'm not sure. I think the answer is both. So one of the organizations that I work with is called Teresa's Research Foundation, and they host metastatic breast cancer research conference every year. And at that conference, it's about 50% advocates and 50% research scientists. And it's largely research presentations. And there's a lot of discussion about how to get advocates more involved in research and that kind of thing. But at those meetings, we have these conversations about the value of teams. And so it's not just my team in my lab is me and my postdoc and my grad student. That's important too. But that your team is working cross disciplines. So you have a biophysicist that's working with a cell biologist who's working with a chemist who's working with a tumor biologist, as well as including the patient voice and ensuring that the patient advocates are being brought into that conversation and that discussion as well. 
I think one of the challenges is that we really don't have great examples of this. On the whole, I don't think that research scientists at the bench think that they should have advocates included in their research. We have a few really, really great examples where it works and there's been benefit, but it's those incentives that we kind of need to work to continue to build into the system to make sure that advocates' voices are being heard in this multidisciplinary, multi-voices, like multiple voices, multiple people that are coming together to have these conversations. The secret, it seems to me, is that we talk the same language across all of those groups. And that's really challenging because you're talking hard science to people who are not necessarily science-based, albeit that they're living with the illness. How do you think we can solve that problem? You know, the way that I learned how to talk to people who are not scientists is by practicing. It takes a lot of vulnerability. It takes sitting there and being told that Somebody doesn't, you you talk to them, you give them an elevator pitch and they give you a blank stare at the end and you realize they didn't absorb a single thing you said. And so you go back and you try it again. And so that trial and error is a lot of vulnerability, but I think that that vulnerability will drive research to just accelerate and move in a way that we haven't really seen in a long time. Scientists tend to be a little bit more, they enjoy being in the lab. They enjoy spending time doing research, not really talking to a lot of people. It's a lot to ask of people to go out and put themselves out there. But I think that there's been tools between some of the conferences that we've been able to do online, using Twitter. There's there's ways to put yourself out there without standing in front of a 500-person room. And so if we can use those tools and over time recognize this value... And one of the things that I think will be beneficial is starting with younger the younger generation. I think if it's socialized that as a graduate student or a, or a postdoc, that I work with research advocates and I have advocates in my lab for lab meetings, or they're coming to poster sessions and having questions and conversations with me about my research, you're going to be ready for that later. And that, that practice and that time that you put into it over time will just improve your ability to have those discussions. Hilary, you come to this with a unique perspective because you had a friend, a very close friend who had experienced what you are now trying to change. Where are the incentives for people who are working in areas where they don't necessarily have that context and background? Where is the incentive for us to be much more open with our advocates about what we're doing and what it's going and how it's going to influence their lives? I do think that the majority of research scientists who are doing cancer research are interested in in improving lives of people living with cancer. I think that not having someone you're directly related to or you know really well still lends itself towards that feeling where you want to make a difference and you want to make a change in someone's life. And I actually think one of the things that I lacked when I was a grad student is I didn't really have that. I tried to participate in things like Really for Life in New York City. I did my PhD at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And so I went into New York City and did Really for Life there as a way to raise money and have that connection with people who were living with cancer. And I think that had I had the opportunities to have conversations with patient advocates, that would have filled that hole that I had in my heart that was you're working hours and hours a day doing research, whether it's in mouse model or in a in a petri dish and getting really interesting, exciting things. But at the end of the day, if you were just doing it for the sake of doing it, it's a little bit different than doing cancer research. 
you think that the work that you're doing has an impact in the long term. And so making sure and and using the opportunity to work with advocates to not only have that personal touch, but also improve communication skills, I think is really where that bread and butter of these types of relationships sit for research trainees. Yes, I agree. I think what you're talking about is the selection of scientists based on different criteria than we've had. It isn't enough just to be very clever at what you're doing. You also have to be interested in making a difference because you're going to have to work with people, real people, whose lives you potentially could impact. Is there something happening in that space? You're a behavioral neuroscientist. That's a unique qualification. You're uniquely placed. And from what you say, your personal interests and what you did to expand your understanding of the situation was quite unique. Do you think that's happening more broadly in the selection of scientists at the bench top? Well, I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that that basic, truly basic research that's not going towards, you know, they're not applying for funding from places like NIH or, or Susan G. Komen. They're applying for funding from places like the NSF. That funding and those types of research are so important for the baseline and the background and understanding of general biology, general chemistry, those kinds of things. I think as soon as you start to move into a world where you're doing disease-specific work, that there is just going to be an inherent need to understand the landscape of that disease. When you look at a grant or a paper, they always start with why this matters. And why it matters is the patient. And so if you have that patient perspective and that patient conversation, it brings in a level of understanding that you can't read in papers. You can read all of the papers that you want to, but until you have that conversation with a a patient or somebody who's lived with the disease, I think it just changes it. I've seen people have the light bulb go off. We ran a program at Georgetown where we brought advocates together with some of our research, research trainees at our summer retreat. And when we were at that retreat, they had a chance to just talk about their research and do like an elevator pitch, the research trainees did. And the advocates explained their background and their interest in even having the conversations with them. And you could see all around the room, just that it, it, it was a feeling that we had in the room of everyone kind of being so excited to get the chance to have these types of conversations. Even people who were apprehensive or nervous, it just was an energy that came out and really highlighted the need for these types of relationships, I think. That sounds very exciting and ideal for what you're talking about. For people who are advocates who are not currently engaged in in the way that you're describing, how do we engage them? It can't be part of joining a club or inner circle that is excited and wants to do things. How do we democratize this? How do we make this more widely available to people? a really great question and something that I'm continually wrestling with from both sides, right? To have, to, to come out and say, you have to work with an advocate. I think research scientists, like I said, are intimidated. They might not know where to start those relationships. And similarly, as an advocate, in my experience, my, my friends who are advocates often will get their initial diagnosis, go through some treatment, and maybe a few years later feel like they're at a point where they want to use their, their experience to make a difference. And at that point, they might not necessarily know where to go. I think, like I've mentioned, Twitter is a great place to get started. There's a lot of really great resources. It does take that level of putting yourself out there, having the, the courage to have those conversations. 
the communities tend to be very kind. And so once you get your foot wet, you know, your feet wet, you can kind of jump in and get a little bit more involved. But there are programs for advocates to get involved with research and understand them a little bit more. I think the other thing that we need as a community is some more, like you're saying, accessible types of resources. Are there things that we can do on, again, taking advantage of what we've learned through the pandemic, things we can do online and and presentations or courses that we can kind of use as an opportunity to, to teach both. So a handful of universities, I would say a lot of universities at this point, have recognized the value of science communication. And so they're having these meetings with their students to teach them about it. Maybe they're doing elevator pitches. Is there an opportunity to bring an advocate into that room? Have them learn the same kinds of things. Not only the skills they need to do an elevator pitch to explain their story as an advocate, but also to start to listen to the trainees and the types of stories that they have. That's how relationships spark. was just that beginning, initial, let's get them in the room together. But I think there are a lot of opportunities that I can see coming down in the next few years where we'll have, whether it's using online platforms or having more conversations in person, these, these spaces that are safe spaces to start building these relationships and learning about the background of cancer and or from as like as an advocate learn the scientific terminology but also as a research scientist to learn how to explain your research a little bit more in a lay friendly way. Yeah, that sounds exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking. It's about making a space that's safe, that is accessible, that people where people can feel that they are being heard and they're having a conversation as opposed to being spoken to as it were. The real danger, of course, is that for many patients, when they get their diagnosis and they get treated, they decide, I'd never want to walk into that place again. I want to say goodbye to this disease forever. It never happened. I don't want to know anymore. And so to entice them back, to bring them back, you have to create an environment where they feel that this is the next logical step for them to contribute back or even to get some closure on what happened little more than a year or two ago. Right. I think the other thing that plays into that is coming at it from a different angle and taking ownership of it. I think there's empowerment. I've had this conversation with a handful of my advocate friends of this disease happened to me and now I can take control to make sure that, first of all, no one has to deal with this again, but also that I can use the experience I have and the knowledge that I've gained from my diagnosis to improve research and improve the lives for the next the next round of people. So there is definitely a level of that that comes into it. But I think your point, one of the big holes in this whole system is the lack of training for both sides. And I I don't mean training in the sense of let's sit down for a six-week course. It could be a one-time thing to just say like, this is the room that's a safe space. We're going to have these types of conversations. There are a handful of articles out there about the value of the relationships. But what we're lacking in the space is an article about how to go about establishing them. So I think one of the things that I'm working on right now with Teresa's foundation actually for this conference is to start to identify some of those directions that we can move and some of the suggestions we can have about best practices, you know, organizations that have done this really well, because there are, there are organizations out there that have look for ways to, to create that safe space and create those opportunities for these relationships to form. That's right. And the other area, of course, is the whole area of equity, that the communities that are most 
affected by some of these cancers are those who are least likely to be invited or engaged in a meaningful way. And that's the real challenge, isn't it? To get the ethnic minority groups in particular more engaged in how they can contribute to dealing with a disease that often affects them more than anyone else. Absolutely. And I think that part of what we need to be conscious of as we're building out these safe spaces is making sure that equity is present, that we're, we're being really equitable and not, you know, I think for different people from different backgrounds and different experiences, but also as we think about inviting advocates in and having it not be performative advocacy. That's one of my biggest pet peeves about advocates being included is a lot of times there'll be a grant that requires, quote unquote, an advocate to review the grant or to be part of the grant. And a lot of times that just becomes the advocate receiving the grant the day before it's due, writing their letter, and then never hearing from the researcher again. And so avoiding spaces like that and being really ensuring that we're being equitable across different backgrounds and different experiences, because again, that's going to be how we find these changes and how we we make the difference in the next step of, of where we're going with cancer research. To your point, to why you're doing this in the first place, it's about respect. It's about caring enough to want to make a difference. It isn't about making sure that your grant is funded or that you've ticked the box that says advocate included, which is extremely disrespectful and clearly counter to all that you've been saying for the last little while. Did you want to say something now about where to from here for you personally and for the work that you're doing? Yeah. So I have, after I finished my postdoc, I moved into a healthcare consulting company for a few years to learn the FDA side of things and really understand not only the bench to bedside and the clinical trials sense, but also beyond that, how do we get drugs approved and what does that process look like? What is the current landscape of kind of our treatments and and how are we going to continue to improve them? And now I work in an organization called Friends of Cancer Research. And what we do is we bring various stakeholders together. So that's pharmaceutical companies or we have patient advocates on our teams and physicians and kind of the, the thought leaders in the field, along with FDA in some cases, to have conversations about how do we ensure that patients are being treated the best that they can be. And so I think in the next few years, we'll continue to see initiatives like that and like I mentioned, my work with Teresa's Foundation as well, that type of collaborative organization that's bringing different voices together. We've had a lot of years of scientists starting to recognize the value of collaborating with one another. And now it's going out beyond the scientists, including the patient voice and others, to ensure that we're moving forward and, and making better treatments for patients and, and treatments that will allow them to live longer and not have to worry about all these crazy side effects or the secondary cancers that might form, and that kind of thing. We want survivorship to be an enjoyable experience. We want them to be able to have a life beyond cancer diagnosis. And and even if it is a lifelong treatment experience, but that treatment ends up not impacting their lives so negatively. Hilary Stars, you're extraordinarily caring. You're extraordinarily thoughtful. I love the fact that you came from the bench top area and you really care about the outcomes for people who are going to end up getting the treatments that you've been developing in the lab. You're uniquely placed to make a difference and we wish you every success. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Health Design Podcast. 
sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.